This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Don Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Joining me today is an acclaimed visual designer, photographer, cinematographer, artist, and magical thinker. For nearly three decades, he has co-directed David Copperfield's live stage show and television work, as well as collaborating as David's design director. We discuss his design style and extraordinary attention to detail, and he tells me about the responsibility of shooting the photographs for a book on the world's greatest collection of magic. Coming up, we discover more of Homer's Odyssey as I speak with the multi-talented Homer Lee Wang. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la, la 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 la. Hi, Pat. How are you? I am doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. I feel like I've entered the inter sanctum of creativity. <laughs> That's what we call it. That's actually uh, what's above the door. There's a plaque that says the inner sanctum of creativity. Great. Let me just dive right into what your definition of creativity is. It really is different things for different people. And for me, it's problem solving. I'm very fortunate to work next to two of the most creative people I've ever met in my entire life. And it's not about Today, I'm going to be creative. It's all about how do we make this work? How do we solve this problem? How can we make this better? It's engineering. It's literally engineering and problem solving. And I don't see it as like a creative switch or, or a label. It's what we do. It's uh, how do we make something work? How do we make something better? How do we solve a problem? And we attack it in that way. Well, I know it's in your DNA because you do so many different things. And while I speak of creativity, not as a muse and not as something that comes from outside the door, but as something that many people that I interface with, it's transferable. They use it from one thing to another. And you're a guy who has an eclectic amount of interest in things and details. And I know only fleetingly that you were a childhood tennis phenom. And I could see on your Instagram, which by the way, could keep a starving person alive, the food prep and the photography that you do of your cooking, it's insane. I know you have a lot of followers and they're tracking your food and your dogs and your mini golf and your dad's story. So I'm so fascinated to be able to finally ask some questions about all of that. What is it about you that does a deep dive when you get into something you get passionate about? I have this thing where, for example, cooking, it's like magic to me. When you go to a restaurant and you have an amazing dish, it's like being fooled by a magic trick for me. So I don't know how it's done. It's like, why does the pasta taste so good? Why is the sauce so savory and not taste like it's out of a jar? It's easy to just look up a recipe and go, oh, it's because they use guanciale instead of pork belly or something. But then I try to do it and it's not the same. 
So now here comes the real work for me in creativity is figuring it out and going into the trenches and making the thousand mistakes. One of the first dishes I ever learned, a friend of mine told me about this restaurant in New York City called Lupa. And they had this amazing dish there called the Bucatini alla Matriciana, which is an amazing pasta dish. I had it there, was blown away. And like any good magic trick, you're fooled by it. You don't know why it's so good. So I tried to make that and I thought I was decent at it. And it wasn't until maybe three years later that I finally hit that, you know, the 10,000 hours or whatever they say, what made it special and what made it good. It's sort of like I do that with everything. It's like, I love art and I wish I was a better artist. And when I see someone paint or draw, to me, it's a magic trick. I don't see brushstrokes. I see light and shadow and form and composition. And that fools me. It's like, I'm fascinated by things that fool me. Why does the ball spin a certain way in billiards? Why is uh, the ball come off the ping pong paddle or table tennis paddle a certain way? And I have to figure that out. So if you told me, Pat, we're going to play darts tomorrow night, I'd probably spend six hours on YouTube figuring out dart mechanics and grip and foot positions, weight distribution on your feet. That's just me, but I don't know why, but that's something I've been doing for a long time. And thank God for YouTube. You can kind of learn, if you can filter out the bad YouTube videos, you eventually can find the ones that teach you for free, which is great. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. And I admire that you do that instinctually. You mentioned the idea of lighting. So I, there's a lot of directions I can go with what you're saying, but the lighting is something because you're a photographer and a cinematographer, I'm really fascinated with how you tell a story with light. And most recently you photographed the book, David Copperfield's History of Magic with thousands of props and ephemera and books. And I can tell from seeing these wide shots that this is not how the room would normally be lit per se. So it's extraordinary how much detail goes into that. And I just want to know, what do you do when you look at any subject or any area when you begin to say, how do I use light to tell the story? So this was a very special project for me, uh, shooting David Copperfield's history of magic. I've been working in the museum with David and Chris and the team. Uh, Chris Kenner, we're talking, which is a very creative person that you probably know very well. It's not an everyday thing, but when we get new collections in or we get some new lights in, we'll go in and, hey, let's uh, arrange displays. So I've arranged a lot of the displays in there. David will say, we got 11 objects for uh, this magician. Let's give it a shot, give it an arrangement. So I'll take a couple hours and I'll arrange a certain way. I'll point some lights at it. And then as we get more things in, it'll evolve or we'll shove it down the corner or we'll have to remove things. So there's a creative process and time of just being able to compositionally arrange someone's props. What if it's a box of stuff? It doesn't look great if you just open the lid and it's just sitting there. It could be for some magicians, but it's nice to maybe open a coin purse and let the coin spill out or uh, have an object coming out of the jacket if that's what they're known for. Or um, Cardini had uh, his special gloves, the famous manipulator. I'd rest the gloves on his shoulders. So it's like he took them off and placed them there. And then over time, we may revisit it a few months later and arrange it again and light it again. It's sort of an evolution. It's not one and done. It doesn't become a project in three days. It's finished. It's always evolving. We're rearranging the museum every other week and relighting something every other week for the last 30 years. And when I had the chance to photograph the museum, it was almost like a great conclusion to that process to actually get it in print, get it photographed. 
one of my goals was to actually have the photographs feel like it looks when you visit in person. Because the museum is not like a brightly lit room where everything is just out in spotlights. It's a little moody and it's very dense. Objects are layered upon objects. Costumes are behind costumes. Posters are behind the costumes. Props are open with giant saws halfway into them. As we were lighting, I was trying to light it like if it were natural. So instead of like a big spotlight on the front of it, like if it were in a theater, it was lit with shafts of light coming from an angle, like it was shooting through a window in the sky. And that's a lot of uh, cinematography influence. And because it's not like a movie where I could have one giant light and a shaft of light shining down onto Dante's sawing, for example, I had to do it with three or four small lights. And the thing I figured out is if you can take those small lights and put them at the same angle and the same shaft angle, it feels like the same light source coming to the same window and it gives you that quote cinematic feel. And then it was a matter of capturing that in a camera, which as you know, if you look at something that looks wonderful to the eye, if you just click a photo, it doesn't look the same. Contrast usually is bumped up, highlights are blown out. We have posters surrounding every object. So you have reflections of lighting in every glass. So to actually capture the mood in a photograph was a lot of work and a lot of tweaking of the light and an, an augmenting of the light. Sometimes I had to turn all the light off and supplement it with my own lighting. And sometimes I could use what was there and just block reflections. That was quite a challenge, but I was most fortunate that I had text to work with. So it wasn't just like I was telling my own story. I was telling the story of Richard Wiseman and David Britland and David Copperfield, of course. They wrote an amazing text to each of these items in this museum book. And as I first started shooting, I started with Dante's sawing, a very famous sawing prop, Dante the Magician. After shooting for a day, I was like, I better read this text. And as I read the text, it was so informative as of the story and the mood and the history of this object that it changed the way I shot it. So I made sure that before I shot each prop, I read the three or four pages of wonderful description and text, and I highlighted the objects that needed to be featured. And I also kind of maybe make a, a note in the margins, like this was a performer that had a dark past or they died tragically or they were loved by all. And that informed the lighting and composition and photography. Yeah, all of that emotion exists in those photographs. So it's interesting to hear about the process. And for the listener, let me take a little step back to explain that this museum, the International Museum and Library of Conjuring Arts, is not a public place. It is a private museum of David's in a secret location on the outskirts of Vegas. And yet they are generous with insiders, magic buffs, historians, folks that they invite. I've been privileged to be there. And it is a unbelievable experience because you don't go, hey, I feel like going there at noon. You have to wait for an invite. And when you get invited, it's a very small group of people. And you can stop me if I cross the lines of telling any magic secrets. But Given that the book is out, I feel like the old adage, magician never tells their secrets. The one thing, Pat, that you experienced that not many people know is that it's not just a walkthrough and like, here's an object, here's an object. David tells a story that's combined with a light cue and music cues so that when he talks about his first experience in a magic shop as a kid, he takes you to this counter from Macy's that he bought his first magic trick, and it's the only thing lit in the room. So you're in this dark room, and you see only the counter. So the focus is on the counter. 
David tells this amazing story about he met this gentleman there that taught him his first trick. And then when he talks about the shop, the music swells on cue. Thank you, Chris Kenner, for programming all that. David turns and the lights come up in this giant magic shop. That's a recreation of his childhood magic shop, Tannins in New York City. And that is hard to describe in a book, but you got to experience that. I did. And not only that, but Tannen's moment, of course, every glass box, everything had the tricks that he saw when he was a kid lovingly displayed. And he demonstrated a couple of the smaller tricks that he might have purchased at the time. But in addition to that, which was a great emotional ride, in my group of 10, who I didn't know, there was a woman who had worked with the Tannen's family. And I mean, I saw David get emotional. I saw the woman get emotional. And I felt like there's a lightning strike happening right now because of the theatricality, but more importantly, because of the depth of the emotional impact it had. It really made that night special. And every room in that and every exhibit that you turn to, it is wild that that's happening. And it's generally happening in the middle of the night because David has so many shows that they might arrange this after a late show where you end up starting at midnight. And I looked at my watch afterwards and I go, I can't believe they just put on another two hour show. It is a show. It's a small crew of people. It's all done in love. And David just loves to share, not just here's what I own. He's sharing the wonder that these props have done for people through years, generations. Yeah, it was a thrill to see that. And also, you mentioned Chris Kenner. Over the pandemic, he showed me all the work they did in building out the library and that all of you put into the archives. And it's really, I would say, the best in the world of what it is in terms of not just display, but what the collection is, what the access is, and really the generosity of spirit when they present it so lovingly to the people who attend. It's really an amazing experience. And since you've been there, you were there about a year ago, maybe. There's a brand new addition in there in the Orson Welles section. That's another experience. So it's just constantly evolving. And I won't reveal its secret location, but I will say that you do enter it almost like you're in a James Bond movie. You enter it through another storefront that's unsuspecting. And that is such a great way to enter the world of magic is through that door of illusion, like you're going into Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. It's inspired by a man from uncle secret entrance and you know it's not really a giveaway or anything because you could drive by it every day it's a tribute to his uh, father's clothing store corby's it's so great it's full of intrigue so the book that you did with them is really beautiful it's available at barnes and noble and elsewhere anywhere books are sold as they say one thing i want to mention that i've heard from a few people and this is interesting to me talking creatively again a lot of people told me, and I've never heard this until this book, that the photographs look like paintings. I'm not sure why or what I did, but I've had cinematographers tell me that and photographers tell me that, just random people, magicians even, and I'm not sure why, but uh, hopefully that's a good thing. <laughs> I think maybe it has to do with the fact that you are an artist, you see things artistically, you're a photographer, and then that cinematography, which is a... I have to take a side note on the word cinematography because my mom has no idea what that word means. And parents often don't know what they're talking about. But my mom thought that cinematography meant scenery. It could be. Well, it can be, yes. 
It's part of it. Here's how she used it. We were at the Grand Canyon, and she looks down, and she goes, will you look at the cinematography down there? She's not completely wrong. She'll be happy to hear that, by the way. She listens to this podcast as if she's sitting with you and I. So I will get a call afterwards where she will correct me. <laughs> so if you want to pay her that compliment, I'm sure she'll take it. Oh, yeah, I think it's not wrong at all. The other thing is when I first started the book, I sent a few test images over to Priscilla Panton, the uh, editor-in-chief of Simon & Schuster, who headed the uh, project. And she said she loved them and all that. And then at the end, she said a sentence, something to the point of just make sure that the object discussed is the focus of the photo. And it made me question the photos I sent her. What Did I do it? Did I not do it? Did I fail? So I spent a long time looking at those photos going, wait a minute, that object is the focus, but maybe because I know the object. What if someone's never seen this before? And the objects are very dense. Some people's props might be literally next to a whole nother magician's entire repertoire. These objects were kind of shot in situ. So it wasn't like I took an object and put it on a gray sweep and shot it in a studio. I wanted to shoot it like it was in the museum. It was amongst his peers. But how do you make it stand out in the photograph? Is it the only thing in focus? Is there a light shaft hitting it and everything else falling out in darkness? Is there a color contrast? Maybe the background is slightly desaturated naturally and this object is popping in color. So that really made me think. And a lot of the things in my life that's affected me positively, I believe, is people that have put questions in my head. You know, when I was really little, my dad, who's an incredible artist, showed me a picture of Whistler's mother, which is arrangement in gray and black number two, I believe is the official title for that. And it's a famous painting of a woman sitting in a chair in side view with a painting on the wall. And I believe, uh, is that it? Uh, there's a third object or a curtain or something. I looked at that and my dad said, that's an example of great composition. And then he never explained why. So now my head's going, uh, why is it good? Is it good? Do I agree with him? Do I disagree with him? What's great about it? And I haven't really deep dived into Google as about why it's great. I just like the mystery of it. And I approach that with everything. And it's like with Priscilla, with the book, she said, make sure the object in question is the focus of the painting. And that's all she said. And she didn't critique anything and take anything apart. And I think that helped me a lot by keeping it general and putting the question in my head. And I kind of can figure it out for myself and solve my own problem or approach it in my own creative process without someone telling me what to do. Yeah, that was a good note. And it always makes you think, what is the story of this object? Okay, if this object is the center of the focus, the why of it, and you've explained a little bit why you chose to put Cardini's gloves over his shoulders, but every one of those, you were exploring much more the life of the object so that it took on a life of its own and it spoke to the viewer. One more thing about this project is I was very fortunate that I could spend almost an infinite amount of time in that museum. Most photographers, if they were hired to shoot that museum, would have been two weeks, set up an umbrella. There was maybe, I forgot how many objects are shot in that book, but there's over almost 200 photos. Well, yeah, and they said that in the museum itself, there's 300,000 objects. So I know you're not shooting all of them, but they're all to be considered in the backgrounds and on the side angle. And Exactly. So imagine if I was a hired photographer, would show up with two umbrellas, maybe an assistant, and they would be able to shoot five to 10 objects a day. And they couldn't spend six months in there. They'd be starving. Yeah. If they were running and gunning and saying, we got two weeks, they'd probably shoot around the clock just to try to get it accomplished. So 
it was funny because when David asked me at the beginning of this project, he asked how long would it take me to shoot the museum? And I'm the king of underestimation with this kind of stuff. Oh, I could do it in two weeks. It took me two years. Not every day, but I would go in for a weekend. On a week off, I'd go in for five days and shoot. I had the freedom and the time. If I was burned out after five hours of shooting, I would stop. I didn't shoot for 20 hours straight, which sometimes that's a good thing. But I had the freedom of time. And then the pandemic hit so I could just go in there and shoot and leave my stuff set up. So I could, in the middle of shooting a prop, leave my lighting equipment up, which sometimes was 10 C stands and flags and you name it all over the place because there was no tours going on. So I had an extreme luxury. I was very fortunate that David gave me that amount of time to be in there and it worked out. Let me talk about two areas in the museum that really struck me. But I'm a theater guy. And so when I'm in an area that feels like a recreated theater, or in some cases because it's the actual props, I believe that the Robert Houdin section of the museum, which had the pastry cook, the patisserie, that was amazing to kind of give people an overview. And this is the real prop that existed, that there's this miniature pastry chef with a miniature restaurant, and it's on a table, and the little pastry chef comes out and He'll make anything that the audience declares or there's a little menu or something that comes out on a little plate. That was an amazing prop. But the fact that it was living on the actual feeling of the stage and the actual curtains and the seating area, it transported me to another time. Yeah, that's an amazing prop. And I think it even at the end will give you change. So you put a, a French, so I guess a French franc or whatever in there. And then the chef would go back in or the hostess would go back in and come back with a tray of change. Right. And similarly, the Martinka Theater, which was a turn of the century palace of magic. It was a magic shop in New York City in the 1800s. And this was lovingly replicated, this legendary ornate theater and I get into that. You know how some people have to live near the ocean or they have to see mountains in their hotel room? When I get into theater spaces, I can feel the ghosts of people that work on the boards there. I know when I'm traveling, if Houdini played here, the boards hold on to that. The whole idea of there being a ghost light is something that keeps those spirits alive. Yeah, those are amazing rooms and fun to photograph and challenging too because the Martinka room is tiny. It's like the size of a bedroom. And it has maybe a 12-foot-high poster in it that's floor-to-ceiling, which is a beautiful poster of Herman the Great, a one-of-a-kind. And it was originally in the Martinka shop. And when David had it framed and placed in the same position relative to the proscenium, then you can really get a sense of that uh, space. So let me take you back much further to help our audience understand how did a guy get a job like this and be surrounded by all of this and have access to it you were a kid. You were young and working magic at restaurants and behind a bar when you got the invitation. Tell us a little bit about your receiving the call to take this job. All right. I was in college at the time, slightly before. I was in college for industrial design, where I was learning how to do product design and drawing. That's where a lot of my art background comes from. Model making, you know, back then that was before computers. So it was all hands-on model making and sculpting and casting and drawing and drafting and rendering. Industrial design is problem solving. I kind of started dropping out of that as I started performing magic in Indianapolis at a magic restaurant called Illusions. 
Uh, have you been to Illusions? I have not, but it's legendary. I do remember hearing about it. That's where I met Chris Kenner, who's the executive producer and magic consultant and creative force at David Copperfield now. I met Chris. We were both performing magic there for many years together. We also did projects together. We published books together. I helped illustrate his books, help write his books. And he went on to become David's executive producer and magic consultant in 1992, I believe, or 1993, one of those years. And that left me by myself, considered by myself, because we were such close friends, at Illusions doing magic. So I was doing magic. I was working behind the bar when I wasn't doing magic. I was working on my material. I was starting to try to do stand-up. That was when I was dreaming of being next Pat Hazel, Matt King, on stage with a mic. Aren't you glad you didn't follow that now that you see the actual Pat Hazel? <laughs> I remember when I was doing stand-up, even though they had a lavalier mic, I forced myself to learn how to use a stand-up mic because I wanted to be a stand-up comedian magician. So I learned how to hug the mic in the crotch of your arms so you could lean forward and have a person select a card or lean the mic to have them talk. So I was trying to learn all that stuff. I just was never very funny or knew how to be funny on stage. A lot of people say I'm funny in person, chatting with them. Within a couple of years, I was working on my own magic and I was uh, doing my own thing in Indianapolis. Chris gave me a call. He, they were in the middle of a tour. We used, at the time, they were touring 46 weeks out of the year. They were on the road touring the world. And he gives me a call. It's like, we have an opening today for an administrative assistant. We know you can type fast. Can you be on a plane in two hours? At that moment, I was standing in a courtroom with a friend, a couple friends of mine watching a court case for the son of a Black Panther. And I was like, yeah, I can be on a plane two hours. So I packed a bag. That night, I flew to Rhode Island, where the show was finishing up that night. And the next day, I was an administrative assistant, typing letters, taking dictation, filing, working 9 in the morning till midnight. And within two months, David was like, oh, hey, Homer, how do you do this? I know you have some kind of art background. Can you help us with this thing? Is there an art store in town? Give me some illustration board. I brought some tools with me. And what it was, was he was sending some videotapes to Gianni Versace and he wanted a custom box made. So I said, get me some black illustration board, get me some black art tape, some ribbons. And I hand cut, hand scored a custom box that fit inside perfectly two VHS tapes that would slot in. This was for Gianni Versace. It couldn't look like it came from Michael's folded sticker and it slid perfectly into a FedEx box and the sticker was custom. So we printed a custom magic of David Copperfield on the sticker. This is the way we work. It was so funny because the FedEx guy was waiting for us. And normally they don't wait for a package. It's like their rule. Otherwise all their deliveries would be missed. So Chris goes, Hey, why don't you sit in the front row and watch the show? So he watches the show while I finish this box frantically cutting and scoring because it's five o'clock that FedEx guy has to take the package and it has to go out tonight. And I was making the label and between cues, Chris runs back to my desk and is like, do you have that label done? David has to approve it. I finished the label. Chris takes my label, puts it in his fingers like a magician would hold a finger palm, which you know, so it's hidden in his hand. And there's a moment where Chris has to run on stage to take a knife from David for one of the illusions. As he goes to reach for the knife, he puts his hand in front of David like he's holding his hand out to receive the knife. And he goes, is this good? And David looks at it, goes, perfect. Hands him the knife. Chris walks off, gives me approval. I put the sticker on the box. It gets shoved into the FedEx package. Chris grabs the FedEx guy, and it goes off to Gianni Versace. That was like the first moment of like creativity for David. Wow. Well, I love that story. And I got to break down three really important things for the listener. Number one, 
in the beginning, the first thing you talked about was being friends with Chris and meeting at a place where you were performing. What people need to remember is that the earliest friends you have in your business, in creativity, in storytelling, in writing, in acting, in directing, are going to be your friends for a very long time. And that is your Algonquin Roundtable. That will impact and inform the future of what you do. It's important to hang around those kinds of people. Find like-minded people. Find people with the interest you have. So that was like the first little tumbler falling into the safe to unlock the secret here. The next was you taking the job, as I would put in quotes, a typist, right? You were going to be an executive assistant, and you had all these other skills hidden away inside, ready to do so. Yeah, that's not to go, well, I'm better than that. I'm not going to be an assistant. I look at it as an opportunity to join an amazing group of people. It was an opportunity to do something different, to travel the world. I saw it, all the positive. I didn't see any negative in it. Right. And so here's what's interesting about that. The part that I want to put the spotlight on is that you should always move towards the epicenter of your interest, get closer to the target, which is what you did. Now you're in the eyes of Chris and David, and when opportunity knocks, you're there, you're ready. You're the person they say, can you do this? And now you're able to showcase everything that you're capable of. And that probably continued in their eyes through a series of things that kept putting you in control of more of the visual design and all of those things to where, as co-director now, people don't knock on the door of a magic bar in Indianapolis and say, hey, do you have anybody here that can co-direct David Copperfield's live television? Right? So I'm saying there's, there's a morphing of it. And so... I always say, move towards what you want to do. You can do a lot of things around the world, but if you're going to do a certain thing, you might need to be in New York or Chicago or Paris. You might need to be where there are other artists or other writers or other opportunities. Maybe don't make that shift until your skill set is ready because it's expensive to live in those places. Anyway, I want to highlight that. And the third thing I want to say, and this really is a salute to your attention to detail and the people that you work with, no problem is too big to solve. You think about every detail. You think about every moment. Just telling the story is exciting to think, okay, this is important enough that David has to approve it. It's important enough that you have to stall the FedEx guy. That's Chris's problem solving too. You're going to have him on this podcast and he's a, a master of problem solving. And that's one of his lateral thinking solutions is the FedEx guy's like, I got to go. I don't care who this is. Come have a seat. I'll put you in the front row. And it's like, oh, wow, I'll do that. And all of a sudden, we've just got an extra 25 minutes out of the guy. So that's thinking out of the box, literally. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm sure Versace probably fell over himself to get this package. That's a real art to gift giving. And in some ways of romance, because making that box and making that label and using that ribbon, I see that reflected in your Instagram. I see it in things that you build and the art that you make in the jewelry you designed. You designed a Star Wars wedding band. You don't stop at thinking of a thing. You go all the way for detail. So let's just talk about your love for the attention of details. Is there a moment where you know you have it and you stop? Or do you continue to always try to nuance something to the point that it's maddening? A lot of people ask me what my creative process is. For myself, it's different than for David. So for myself, I'm really lazy. I have got a list of projects. It might take me years to do. I don't like to spend a lot of time on them. So I'll usually brew it in my head for a long time. I like 
formulating things in my head and then putting on paper at the last second. You know, there's some people that as soon as they have an idea, they start sketching and they fill pages and pages in a sketchbook. I'm the exact opposite. I have a lot of notebooks that I make too precious. So I end up not writing in them. And then in my head, I have to have this perfect idea. Then I sketch it and maybe it becomes the only sketch in that book. And it always bothers me because I love looking at incredible sketchbooks filled from front to back inside the cover. You know, Guillermo del Toro's sketchbooks are incredible. Every inch, every centimeter of that, every page is filled with something. I'm so jealous of that because I'm the exact opposite. The first page of my sketchbook will say, you know, X project, a date. It'll be so perfectly written. I usually write it on the third page. So if I fuck it up, I can uh, rip it out. But I was talking to a designer friend of mine and he had designed speakers for Brookstone. He takes out his notebook and goes, see that sketch? That was a sketch for that speaker. I only did like one sketch. He calls it being a sniper. You go right for what you want, you draw it and you make it. You don't go, what about these five variations? So when you're working for yourself, which when I'm creating like a ring for myself or a deck of cards for myself, I usually have one direction I explore it, I take it as far as I think I can get to it, and then I kind of burn out and be like, like I put another 100 hours in this, it might only get 2% better. So I stop and I make it happen. I like things seeing fruition. If it's a deck of cards, if it's a ring, if it's a custom golf card for my putting green out back, whatever. I don't like it sitting in a notebook. I like it being produced or printed or manufactured. But to answer your question, my process with David is completely different because he is a driving force and he will not stop until it feels right to him. So generally when David's pushing me, I've kind of figured out that David pushes me at least 80% past where I think something should be finished. I'm usually at the point where this seems good enough. Dave's like, no, something's wrong. And when I first started working for David, it was kind of frustrating because I was like, this feels good enough. Chris, what do you think? This is really good. And David would be like, something doesn't feel right. And he's very good feeling was gut. Something's not right. And the audience tells him that. We put something in front of the audience and I'll see the positive side. Well, it looks like they're applauding. It looks like they're responding, but David can feel it. It's like, it's not right. And it could be, what is it? Is it the music? Is it the timing? Is it the lighting? Is it the effect? Is it the story? Is it what I'm saying? And so something I've learned very recently, just in the last few years, and it's really helped me a lot with my process is to trust his feeling. So even though I think something is perfect, if this were me, I would have stopped right now, made it happen and moved on to something else. If he says something doesn't feel right, I will start trying to figure that out. Maybe the music needs to be shifted or edited. Maybe if you say something before it, it'll preempt it and make it better. So one big thing that's changed in my creative process with David is to trust his gut and even though I think something is fine, I'll start exploring it because almost every single time I explore something that I think is fine and I explore further, it becomes better. And that's because of him pushing me. When I'm doing my own stuff at home, I have no one to push me but myself and maybe one or two friends telling me what they think. But friends will always tell you, oh, that's pretty good. You know, <laughs> it's not the same. So that's a, a big thing with my creative process. Well, it's good. I think ultimately in that situation, David is the client. You're collaborating when you're designing for someone else versus designing for yourself. So you work in so many different mediums. 
in terms of photography and so forth, but you've mentioned the sketchbook. And I want to just know what the difference is when you put pencil to paper versus when you're at the computer or behind the camera. Well, I'm also pretty old school. I like to draw on paper. I rarely use computers to draw. I tried SketchUp and I tried different kinds of CAD and it's just not for me and it keeps changing and I can never keep up with the software. So I learned old school drafting. So my process is to draw it up as accurately as I can. I try not to draw things that cannot be built. I have a general aptitude for engineering. And then I try to draw till David has a nice feeling for it that David can respond to. And then I bring it to a CAD guy or a 3D guy to take it the next step. And usually it loses a step because a drawing is sketchy, lines are fuzzy, so things feel differently. As soon as they become hard lines and hard angles, it tends to lose things. So this we're just talking aesthetically now, not mechanically. So there's always a trick there to figure out how to get back. David always says something that Chris and I always kind of laugh at, which is, it was better yesterday. We'll do something and we'll take it where we think it's better because we put it in the computer, we scanned it, and then, no, it's better yesterday. Show me the original sketch. Show me what you did yesterday. And that's why, you know, all our Photoshop files have 100 layers because I we like to go back steps. We save as all the time. We don't flatten things. You know, a lot of projects are just very complicated because David likes to go, well, wait a minute, what did you have two days ago? Oh, okay, let me turn off that layer and figure that out. Well, it's like a lot of film directors when they're doing, let's say, a remount of a movie or something like that. They don't go always just to the previous film. They go back to the original book or they go to their short story or they go to the origin because so much of the truth lies in the initial thought. And sometimes discovering that, it takes research and it takes patience. And I think people who want to do things one and done on the fly, the results are adequate. And we save everything. We're on a project right now for David's Island where uh, there was a project there that was just out in the sun deteriorating, so it's destroyed. And to recreate it would be very difficult because it's a very complicated arrangement of cloth inside a large tunnel of crates. And I pulled up a drawing that I did in 2009 that was my version at the time of a very simplified version of it where it could be made in a day instead of made in a week. And I showed it to him and he's like, that's perfect. Let's do that. At the time, his mind was, let's do something with the cloth that's more drapey and more fancy and more Irving Penn. It took, you know, weeks to do. And now as we're restoring it, I was like, hmm, let me look through my files. And there was this, it said, create cloth idea, 2009. And I know I to keep old things because when you look at it with fresh eyes, it sometimes is like, wait a minute, what about that? In my head, I'm going, I showed that to you. 12 years ago. But I know the mind's different, that we evolve and things change. And he looked at that and was like, that's great. Let's do that. Sometimes minimalism is the better idea. It's not to make it ornate. I like how casually you said at David's Island. That shows you the success that David has and your team has when your friends have islands. Large islands in crystal clear waters. <laughs> amazing. Sounds amazing. Well, you use your imagination in so many ways. And I think it was Albert Einstein who talked about imagination being more important than knowledge. But together, it's a pretty powerful combination because he said he never came upon any of his discoveries through the process of practical thinking. It required that 
state of dreaming bigger and looking at things differently and reinventing. Some time ago, I stumbled across a short film, a Land Rover commercial that featured you. And it really intrigued me. It talked about what you did as a visual designer. And it struck me that you talked about visual design primarily being a way of focusing what the viewer sees in terms of storytelling. And it speaks to all of your various interests and how you approach things. I think what impresses me is that you're a bit of a silent leader in that you go about your clandestine problem solving and thinking a little under the radar given where you work and the kinds of things you do, but there's so much more. And so you'll appreciate as a cinematographer that I wanted to shine the light on you today. I hope people get to know you better. They can go to your website, thehomerleewag.com and find great videos and photographs. And if they follow you on Instagram, they will never go hungry. My attention span is 10 different hobbies. It's kind of a diary. I feel like every day I need to do something that feels like it's creative. And it doesn't mean sitting down and doing creative things, but it might mean capturing that shaft of light coming down by the tree next to the potting green. Or maybe the dog has a great expression on the couch. I want to capture that on a photo. Or maybe it's like, oh, I want to try this thing in a recipe. So I always feel like I need to be doing something that feels creative, not necessarily a full-on creative project for a client kind of thing. And it's just something in me that feels like I don't want a day to go by that feels wasted creatively. I like that. And I have to say, that's one of the things I appreciate when your stories come up on Instagram. I feel like I see the world through your eyes. And when you make a meal, the ingredients matter. The details matter. How it's done, it matters. And then I actually see the moment that you photograph this, and I think, I want to eat that picture. It's just so amazing. Uh, So I appreciate you investing the time to share a bit about your process and how you think and even some of the secrets from the inner sanctum. Is there anything that you would like to offer our listener as sort of a creative jumpstart, something that they can do every day that allows them to live a better story? To me, creativity is just, it's a label you can throw around, but it really is hard work. It's a process. David and I and the team and Chris, we sit there and we don't go, we're being creative right now. This is creativity. It's all like, well, how do we fix this? Oh, this is not working. Oh, we can't get this until Monday. It's a weekend. How do we order this thing? This thing is not working. This metal is not strong enough. There's so many problems and creativity is literally, it's a process and it's a difficult process. It can be fun. It can be hard. It can be painful. It can be rewarding, but it is not just a label. It really is a process and a way of thinking. I think creativity is a lifestyle. And when you start committing to it, life becomes a lot more interesting. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will always hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the savvy producership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing under the steady hand of Marcus Siniskalki. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help us grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's .fun. 
as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty.